Appreciate it. Appreciate your interest in hanging out with us. Uh, we've got some some great clips lined up for you in overtime today. We're going to be uh, playing a clip from CNBC, which is going to be fun. Um, we're going to be playing a clip from Mark, Matt Walsh or Mark Walsh. That's going to be fun. And uh, yeah, so hang out with us in overtime and uh, we will be right back. Welcome back. To the Valley Labor Report. You are still listening to Alabama's only Union Talk Radio show. We are now in overtime. Like I've said, we got some good clips for you. Um, Adam, you had a couple things you wanted to riff on? Yeah, there was just a couple things on my mind before we get back in, into the agenda that I wanted to talk about. Uh, today is New Year's Eve, so one thing that always sticks out for me for New Year's Eve is football. And... Uh, so I wanted to take a moment just to mention that there's been some developments with college football, football, college football players and their ability to unionize. Uh, it's that's a story to keep your eye on. And it's a story that uh, we're going to dive into more um, in 2023. Some of you may know that the uh, players at Northwestern University several years ago, this would have been. Uh, roughly a decade ago, maybe a little bit less, they attempted to form the first college football players union. And uh, they were essentially stopped by the NLRB because their status as an employee was rejected. Cut to today, and a lot has happened in those past several years in college football regarding money. Um, The players themselves have a lot more leverage now than they have maybe ever um, because of new rules with name, image, and likeness, NIL. Uh, players are now getting paid not just under the table, but over the table, uh, actually getting shares of, of some of the ginormous revenue being created around college football and to some extent college basketball as well. But So players are actually starting to get a share of the money through NIL, and they also have more leverage through the transfer portal, allowing them to transfer schools without uh, the penalties that used to be in place in doing so. So that's given them more ability to negotiate and act like a free agent uh, would in the professional world. There was a ruling recently from the National Labor Relations Board uh, regarding a couple schools out west in the Pac-12 conference that seems to indicate that if players were to attempt to unionize now, under the current Labor Relations Board and the current General Counsel, uh, 
they may get much further than they did previously. And I have not studied the ruling in depth enough to tell you definitively, like, yes, they are now eligible to create a union that looks like, you know, any other private sector union. Uh, But it certainly is pointing in that direction. So that's something I wanted to mention uh, because I know a lot of folks will be watching football today and tonight. Uh, I know a lot of my family is already plugged into the Alabama game by now. Uh, It started a few minutes ago. So uh, just wanted to mention that uh, football is a big thing for me. Uh, I am a sports fan and a football fan in particular. And I, for one, support the players. And I, for one, believe the players should have every right to unionize uh, because they're the ones putting their body on the line. And and without them putting their body on the line, there is no revenue to pay coaches millions of dollars or for uh, ESPN to make millions of dollars or for other TV networks to make millions of dollars. Without those players, those young men putting their bodies on the line, that doesn't happen. So... Uh, that's a story I want to keep my eye on next year. Uh, and the other thing I wanted to mention was just that as we move into a new year, definitely would love any feedback from our listeners, uh, especially those of you who are, you know, our loyal, regular listeners. If you have any feedback about what you want to see in the new year, feel free to, to let us know. Uh, we've already talked about some some ideas we have uh, to, to expand the show next year and to make it a, a even bigger, better product for everybody. And so if you have any ideas on that front, definitely let us know. Absolutely. Uh, So the Fed just increased interest rates again a short while ago in an effort to, you know, quote unquote, help, quote unquote, the economy. Um, And there was a clip circulating on Twitter a couple weeks ago or a week ago that just really, really underscores how much this attack on inflation by the Fed is, is just a war on workers. Uh, it's not actually attacking inflation. It's just hurting workers. Adam, let's, let's play that clip. Yeah, slogging. Slogging for the first six months. More slogging. Yes, Joe, thank you for having me, and good morning, everyone. I do think it will be a slog for the first half, certainly, of 23. So people who are coming out of 22 with that exhaustion you were mentioning um, should get ready for some more. We think it's going to be a slog for the Fed. We think it's going to be a slog for the markets. You know, Carol mentioned the consumer. The consumer is just really still very strong. They have cash balances at the banks that are 30 percent above where they were pre-pandemic. Even when you look at the lower-income cohort, they're still 12 to 15 percent above where they were pre-pandemic. So they have cash to spend. They've certainly demonstrated a desire to spend. We're seeing that. What they're spending on is changing, and they're moving more to experiences than goods, but they're spending. And they have confidence to spend, because the jobs market is about as good as we've seen in the last 40 or 50 years. So they have a job, and they have confidence that they can get another job if they need to. So that's a really tough nut for the Fed to crack when the U.S. consumer is 70% of the economy. And so we think this is going to take time. And this is going to be a real slog for the next eight to nine months. Yes, the market is a discounting mechanism, and it will look forward. But we're not close to cutting. We're not close to pivot yet. And right now, the market thinks we cut in November, and that's just too soon. Americans have a job, and they have confidence they'll be able to get a job if they need one. And that's a tough nut for the Fed to crack. 
Yeah, I'm glad you pulled that clip because sometimes it's 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 hard for folks to read between the lines on what they say on these business networks. But this is like what they say 24 hours a day. It's something along those lines. Um, and, you know, they have yet to explain to me, the Federal Reserve or any of their supporters on TV has yet to explain to me how their rising interest rates are going to cut inflation. In fact, I've heard comments from them under oath admitting that it's not going to do that. So what's it about then? Right. If, if it's if it's real, if, if, if we're going to talk about inflation, inflation, inflation every time we mention interest rates, but then we go on the record and say, well, yeah, these aren't actually going to decrease inflation, though. Right. We're, we're making these these interest rate increases. But no, we can't prove that that's actually going to fix the problem that they're ostensibly in response to. Strom in the chat said, every hourly wage employee at my job just got a $3 an hour pay cut. That's insane. Great job, market. Nope. Uh, and that's that's another part of the farsity of, you know, this the the, the thing that it's she's, overblowing, like how good things right. are. Right. It's it's for, yeah, it's yeah. overblowing how good things are and then makes it as if that would be a bad thing if they were that good. Right. Because it's it's not that's a, that's to me, she painted a very rosy picture for the working class. Right. And I know consumer is not the same as working class, but you know, broadly there's a lot she was speaking about the masses. Yeah. Right. And if the like if the masses having twelve percent you know, she said something the lower lower income has twelve percent more in their bank account. I don't know if that's true or if that's not. But if that is true and that's bad for the economy. What the hell is the economy, right? Mm-hmm. What the hell is the economy if the if if the lowest income folks have twelve to fifteen percent more money in the bank, and that's bad for the con the economy? What the hell are these? What is that then? Right. Yeah. What is the point of the economy at that point? Um, yeah. It's 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 a war on working class people. That's being conducted by the Federal Reserve, and this is not the first time we saw this uh, about 50 years ago right? with the rise of neoliberalism. Uh, we saw a very similar uh, track from the Fed, and history is, if not repeating, at least rhyming right here. Right, right. Yeah, and you know, if you'll go back and, and actually read the history on the Volcker shock, uh, it, the precedent for crazily increasing interest rates in this way is not good. Inflation came down, but it was because the economy uh, was stilted. Workers, and when I say when I say the economy, I mean workers were put out of work, put out on the streets because they were out of a job. That's what I say. That's what I mean when I say that. Right, yeah, and, that, and that's what they're talking about at, at the Federal Reserve is rising unemployment on purpose. Right. Like, and, they want to raise unemployment. They want to take more money out of the hands of consumers, a.k.a. Mm -hmm. workers, because they're spending too much. And because, like, if the thing is, their theory of this is that there's too much money going around in the economy, and so we got to take from the workers. Um, Meanwhile, and, like, three families have half the wealth in the country. Right. 
yeah, like if we really, you know, I don't know. I, I, I'm not an economist. Maybe it would be good if we took some money out of the economy. I don't, who the hell knows, right? But if we need to do that, why don't we take it from the people who have the damn money instead of taking it from us? Why don't we take it from them? If the, if, if the deal is, oh, the prices are too high, well, tell them they can't put the prices that high. That's simple. Yeah. Tell that... them that, tell them that, you know, oh, uh, because if you look at the, if you look at actually where the increase in prices from consumer goods has gone, consumer goods have increased, I don't know, like a lot of percent, right? And there's been studies out there about what is this going to? What is this going to? You know, my bananas were, you know, I don't know, my, my milk was, was this much last year and it's this much this year. And what's the difference? What's that delta going to? Well, f over 50% of that delta is just going to profits. Mm -hmm. So just take it. Just take the profits. Just take the profits back and then give it back to the people. Right. That's there's, all, that, there's more than one way to skin a cat. And if that's actually the issue, you know, I don't know. I, don't, I mean, even Richard Nixon was willing to indulge in price controls. Right. I mean, that's no socialist by any stretch of the imagination. But... Even Nixon was willing to engage in price controls. Uh, and when you're talking about fuel and food, mm -hmm. other essentials that are also coincidentally just happen to be dominated by a handful of monopolies in these industries. Right. That's that's another piece of the story. Right. Um, that that got the, the Federal ability. Reserve is not addressing whatsoever. Right. And it's not to say, and you know, so I, I, last time we talked about the Fed, we got people like, oh, well, what do you want the Fed to do? They can only do one or two things. Right. And it's like, well, the, maybe the Fed just shouldn't do anything. <laughs> like maybe it's not my job, you know, like if I'm a janitor, right, it's not my job to, uh, you know, cut somebody's hair that walks in looking scraggly, right? So maybe they just shouldn't do anything or they should do like less than they're doing right now. And they should be putting pressure on the Biden administration and saying, look, you know, this inflation is not caused by workers having too much money because that's an insane thing to think. And so if we want to deal with this inflationary crisis... Congress has to do something. The president has to do something. We can't fix everything. Right. And that's just, you just got to know your role. You just got to know your role. You got to assess the situation. And obviously, workers do not have so much money that it's a problem. Workers do not have so much money that we need to be disciplined with a recession. Okay? That's just asinine. It's absurd. It is, but it's convenient for those who are in Congress and are in the White House to let the unelected Federal Reserve, this kind of obscure agency, be the one imposing austerity and recession. Right. Well, and look at what, I mean, uh, you know, whatever you want to say about Trump, in some instances, his, his uh, uh, political instincts are better than Joe Biden's because when the Federal Reserve was trying to do this under his administration, he attacked the Fed. He was like, look, you know, we'll get these people out of here. We don't need interest rates schedule because because he saw what was going to happen. And he saw that if a recession happened under his watch, he was going to go out. He was going to go out. He wasn't going to get reelected. Why does Biden not have the political instincts of Donald Trump? <laughs> like, what a thing to say. But that's uh, an accurate assessment of what's going on with these comparable things happening. 
Yeah, no, I see, I see what you're saying because the way he responded to Jerome Powell, yeah, like and the way Joe Biden has responded to Jerome Powell, yeah, is obviously very it's not that that Trump like cares about the workers so much. Like he was like, oh, no, you know, it, but he's willing to use his bully yes. pulpit and well, be a bully, right? <laughs> uh, and sometimes that's that's what you have to do. Whereas in Joe Biden's case, it seems as if Powell and the Reserve are just doing what they want them to do, uh, but conveniently don't have to have his, their fingerprints as much on it. That's what it seems to me that like yeah. there's no op- it's not as if the Biden administration or the uh, congressional Democrats have really voiced much opposition at all to anything the Federal Reserve has done. Anything about it. The um, AFL just recently came out condemning it like a couple of weeks ago, but they've been pretty quiet on asleep, it. As well. Yeah, I, I feel like they've been a little bit of sleep at it as well, um, because this is something that's impacting the entire economy and the entire American working class, really the entire global working class, because the way in which American fiscal policy impacts everybody. Yeah. We got a comment, a direct message on Twitter, and you can, you know, with like the best place, probably, if you want to make sure to get your comment answered on the show, um, the best place is probably going to be texting the show. 844-899-8857. 844-899-8857. But, um, but we, I do try to keep a check on all of our various social media accounts. And, and so, you know, you, I'll probably see it, but that's the best if you want us to answer the thing on the show. Uh, but we got this uh, in a DM from Twitter. Uh, Dear TVLR crew, first time, long time. Uh, appreciate the long time. Um, At Christmas Eve dinner with my extended family, I talked a while with my uncle. It's always the uncles. How is that the case? How does that happen? It's always the uncles. He's about 60 and is the happiest, nicest guy you'll meet. He also works in HR at a factory. I often enjoy talking labor news with him because he's always up to date but usually has an opposing perspective. Um, sounds like you're kind of like me, like I enjoy, to argue, I enjoy arguing. Uh, Adam is not that way, I don't think. <laughs> when I talked with him about the rail strike, I said the company acted in bad faith because they knew Congress would ram it through. He disputed that, saying they might have sided with workers, but I told him to look around and get real. I then opined that the sick day situation was unconscionable. He said that sick days are not as big a deal as most people make of it. He contends that sick days were not a priority for all workers and their older workers didn't care as much about sick days and voted more for better retirement and pay while younger workers were interested in time off. He also said the bargaining team was totally unrepresentative of the workforce as a whole. I'd love to hear your or and or a rail workers guests perspective on that. In solidarity, Phil from Wisconsin. P.S. We also got hung up on if the majority of workers voted to reject the rail deal. I know a minority of the 12 unions voted down the contract, but I had been under the impression that the largest unions voted against it. Not sure where to find that info. So a few kind of questions there. The first one, I'll hit the last first, and that is the case that the majority of workers, unions representing the majority of workers, voted down the deal. It was Mm -hmm. only four of the 12 unions, but those were the largest unions, and they made up a majority, more than 50% of workers on the rails. Of the 115,000 workers on the rails, unions representing the majority of them voted it down. So even though, and that's why, right, that the Biden administration did not say in their statement about uh, we're going to do, you know, we're going to ram this down their throats. Um, We're going to ram this down their throats. Uh, He said a majority of the unions have ratified the deal already. He did not say a majority of the workers or unions representing a majority of the workers because that he couldn't say that, but that would sound better, right? 
if you got a majority of the workers on your side, wow, that sounds better. But he didn't. That's why he didn't say that. Um, he, your uncle said that Congress might have sided with the workers. Um, and I, you know, I don't know. I, you told him to look around and get real, and it's like I don't, I don't know what yeah, else I, you can I, say. To, right? You know. Yeah. I mean, obviously there was an attempt uh, by you know Bernie and a handful of others, but we see where that went. Yeah, and so, it's never, and that's never happened in the history of the Railway Labor Act. Right. For yeah. I mean, hundred and you know thirty years, this thing has been the law. And never, ever, ever has Congress and the president sided on, uh, been with the rail workers. Right. So, um, so yeah, it was, you know, you can look at the state of things now. You can look at the historical precedent. We, we all knew pretty clearly that if it, it was in the hands of Congress, it wasn't going to turn out well for the workers. At least, you know. I do appreciate those who fought the good fight. Right. That that very small handful of those who did that. Yeah. The the thing is, I mean, like, it's it's possible, but um, the preponderance of evidence would have suggested to you that that was not the case. Um, And and if you're the, you know, the railroads bargaining committee, um, the worst case scenario is that you go out three years and maybe they side with the workers and only give them seven days of paid sick leave. Which, this is something to tell your uncle. Warren Buffett made enough money in one day to pay for 15 sick days for all 115,000 rail workers in a year. Right? So that's like, the wealth disparity here is just ridiculous. Right, so if you're going to say it's not really a big deal to the workers, well, it's really not a big deal to the company. Right. If we're being honest about it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the, the like, is it likely, it's not likely that Congress was going to side with them, but even if they did, the unions were asking for such, you know, such a little bit that it's like, well, you know, it's better that, better doing this now than having done it three years ago when they began bargaining, right? Um, he said that sick days are not as big a deal as people make of it, um, and I, I don't know where, I, it, it, it's difficult to... You know, all of the reporting that I've seen on it, people actually talking to rank-and-file rail workers, Jonah Furman, Mel Beer, Max Alvarez, all these people, um, Josh Idelson. Sick days has been the thing, right? And sick days has been the thing <clears throat> that is has been put forward as a representation of these rail workers losing their lives to the rails more broadly but that's always been that the I've never seen any of them. I, I have not I have not seen a single rail worker put forward better retirement and more pay as their primary reason for voting down the contract. I'm I've just never seen that. Right. It's, and it's, I feel the work life balance seems yeah. to be so much bigger. Which is not to say that they don't deserve better pay or, or better retirement. Obviously I think they do, right? I you know, I, sure. I wouldn't be opposed to that. But I have just and I feel like compared to like a normal person or whatever, I feel like I've been following this pretty regularly. I've just I've literally not seen it once. So I don't know where your uncle would be getting that. I don't know. I don't know where he would be getting that. Um, seems like work-life balance is the thing that all these people, and I've seen, and I have seen on the flip side, 
I've seen young workers talk about the work-life balance, talk about the sick days. I've seen old workers. I've been I've seen people that have retired from the rails that are still active in their unions talking about the work-life balance, talking about the sick days. So like that really, really, really seems to be the thing. And I don't know how, you know, I don't know how to convince him of that other than to say that I've just never seen what right. he contends. Um, he said the bargaining team was unrepresentative of the workers as a whole. Potentially. Um, I don't know every single person on the bargaining team. I do know that that is an issue in some cases. Um, but uh, to the extent that it's an issue, it's often an issue for those of us who are on the left inside these unions as opposed right. to like the HR people on on the outside yeah, yeah. on the other side of the table yeah. right the, the other side of the table is not all that concerned about how representative the bargaining team is right. they just want to be able to get get one up on the bargaining team right right yeah so i you know i don't i don't know all the people on the bargaining team um but but yeah you know it, it's an issue um but uh yeah, I, I can't not... speak to how much of an issue it was in this particular case. Right. I can say that it's not a coincidence that the longtime incumbent of the BLET was voted out mm -hmm, mm -hmm. as a result right. of this fiasco. Um, and, so you there know, could and... be concerns right. about the representation that they were receiving. Um, it doesn't. It rings a little hollow coming from someone who works in HR in in a factory setting. I mean, yeah, because. Again, your uncle, as you said, very nice person, happy person, but the the position he occupies shapes his perspective. Right. Um, but also, it's uh, whether or not the bargaining team is representative seems to me to be immaterial to what the issues were and how right. agitated the workforce was. Now, you know, on yeah, our side, if BLET itself had some particular flaws in how they were handling things, or there's beef with headquarters or whatever. Okay, I mean that's all cool uh, to talk about and dissect. Right. Doesn't change the fact that railroad road workers deserve sick leave because yeah. everybody in the year 2022 deserves sick leave. Right. That does that right. or it doesn't change the fact that Democrats could have done so much more to right. help working people and they chose not to. Yeah. Uh, so I agree with you. Yeah. I think you can get in the weeds there, but it doesn't really um, get at the heart of the matter. Yeah. I mean, the only thing that a more representative I mean, really, the only thing that a more representative bargaining committee would have done is, is probably would have been pushing for more. <laughs> it's probably would have been pushing right. for more sick leave or more time off and, and, and more. Uh, yeah. If and, anything, and, it, it appeared. Yeah. I, I would imagine so. It would have been a more militant bargaining team. Yeah. Uh, I would say the rank and file were probably, uh, yeah, uh, out, out there a little bit more militant than the leadership was. That's certainly fair to say. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, Phil from Wisconsin. Those are those yeah. Are pre our appreciate the appreciate. the comment. Yeah, and you know, I I'd shared with you some some stuff. I had conversations with family and stuff about the railroads and how mm -hmm. amazing it was the power of mainstream media. Mm -hmm. Because once that deal was signed and Joe Biden and the Democrats made their press tour announcing how they had saved the, you know the country from the brink of disaster. Uh, you know, I have a family member who had been watching our coverage and listening to our coverage, listening to rail workers themselves and was right on line with us. But then once they caught wind of once that blitz on CNN and MSNBC and, and CNBC and Bloomberg, after, a, you know, a two day cycle of that, it was like everything we had talked about had just disappeared and had been washed away by the propaganda 
Um, yeah. And boy, that was that was a uh, very frustrating. Yeah. Uh, you know, and that's something that I think a lot of us deal with in our lives when we talk with friends and family is is the power of media to uh, shape people and the and the exposure to what people do and don't know. I mean, like you were mentioning with this guy's uncle, I don't know where he got some of that, but it right. wasn't from actual real journalism occurring on the subject. Yeah, um, I w- wouldn't seem to be. So yeah, I mean that. So that's a, that's part of it too. Is is the media diets of people and how that impacts folks? Because, boy, that was just uh, gonna, that was just driving me insane. Yeah, seeing how quickly that switched with people, um, once yeah. the media put put out that press for a couple of days. Yeah. Uh, switching gears, one of the one of the many things in the omnibus bill. Uh, was the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act and the Pump Act. Uh, Both of these support pregnant workers in different ways, and they actually passed along bipartisan lines, uh, amazingly. The Pregnant Workers Fairness Act passed 73 to 24 in the Senate, and the Pump Act passed 92 to 5 in the Senate. Hmm. Um, So that's pretty wild. Uh, And and so I just want to make sure that folks understand that for these bills that were all put into the omnibus, there's like two votes on them, right? There's the vote to actually put it in the omnibus or like to vote to show your support for the bill itself, like on its own terms. And that's what these votes are for. These are, And so then after it gets put into the omnibus, after you've shown your support or, or a rejection for the bill on its own terms, then it does or does not get put, got, uh, get put into the big omnibus bill, which then you take a vote on that as a whole, right? And so uh, these are the votes on the bills on their own merits, not attached to anything else. Pregnant Workers Fairness Act passed the Senate 73 to 24. The Pump Act passed 92 to 5. What they do is the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act requires that employers provide pregnant workers with reasonable accommodations, such as access to water, (laughs) uh, increased bathroom breaks, and restrictions on lifting heavy objects. The Pump Act expands legally protected breaks for workers who are nursing babies. So these are very good things. They seem to me to be common sense. They seem to me like they would particularly be common sense for a party that says it's pro-life or that says it is uh, concerned with the health and well-being of mothers uh, that said that, that, that's concerned with families that's concerned with you know that's telling women that they cannot have an abortion that they have to they are forced to give birth so it seems like if you're gonna force somebody to give birth you should at least like protect them while they're at work because like people gotta work most people gotta work even if you're pregnant even if you're a mother so uh seems to me like that would be uh something that the Republican Party would support. Uh, amazingly, actually, both of Alabama's senators voted for both of these two bills, which is, you wow, know, that's wild. Uh, Richard Shelby, uh, not known for being a populist, right? <laughs> this, Richard Shelby, his, you know, his, his career in the Senate is now over. He is uh, not known for being a populist. That is not the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear Richard Shelby. And yet he voted for protections for pregnant workers, uh, as did Tommy Tupperville. And he's kind of, you know, 
he's kind of walking that line. I'm not sure he hasn't. I don't think he's really decided if he wants to associate more with the business Republicans or these business Republicans who are pretending to be working class Republicans. Right. Um, He's also probably not very sure what the word populism means. And so that's they need to get back reasons. with you on yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, that's probably one of the reasons that he's <laughs> taking a while to figure out where he's going. Uh, but um, you know who did not vote for both of these bills? Uh, populist working class Republican Josh Hawley, which is wild. He voted for the Pump Act, but he did not vote for the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act. Which let's what does that do again? What does that do? Oh, it requires employers to provide pregnant workers with access to water, increased bathroom breaks, and restrictions on lifting heavy objects. So he voted against that, which means that presumably he doesn't reckon pregnant workers ought to have access to water. Um that their bosses ought to be able to force them to lift heavy things and that they shouldn't be able to take bathroom breaks. Uh, which is probably super healthy for the baby, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> what a jackass. A few weeks ago, The Hill said that Josh Hawley had emerged as a, quote, champion of GOP populism amid Trump's decline. <clears throat> a couple of weeks ago, separately, Cruz had said that, quote, I think one of the most consequential political shifts of the last decade is that Republicans have become, not are becoming, they have become a blue-collar party. We are the party of working-class men and women, says Ted Cruz. We are the party of truck drivers and steelworkers, says Ted Cruz. Harvard-educated fancy boy. And we're the party of railroad union workers, says Ted Cruz. <laughs> That's, that, I mean, this this really just shows you, the idea, and well, every single one of these people, not a single Democrat voted against the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act or the Pump Act. Every single Democrat in the Senate voted for it. The only people that voted against it were Republicans. And yet they're the party of the working class. If they say it enough, maybe some folks will believe it. That's just bonkers. And this is not to say, obviously, I think, you know, if you listen to the show long enough, you're going to understand that we're not telling you, like, oh, be gung-ho about the Democrats and spend every weekend knocking on doors for them, right? That's not what we recommend you do. We, in fact, recommend you do not do that and spend your time doing something more fruitful like... Which, in this case, would be almost anything almost else. Almost anything, yeah, like organizing a union <laughs> or uh, taking a nap, you know? Self-care, um, yeah. Self-care, yeah. Uh, these are things that you could do that would be more helpful for the world than, uh, you know, knocking on doors for most Democrats. But um, we also particularly do not want people to fall for this scam about Republicans being the party of the working class. Right. Because one of the people leading this movement in the Republican Party... Leading the movement of people pretending to give a damn about working folks is Josh Hawley. And he doesn't reckon that pregnant folks ought to be able to have access to water at work. Like, how, I mean, uh, what else do you say? 
That's bonkers. I don't know if you've got anything else on that, Adam, but I I, I, just, I can't think of anything else to say other than that's crazy. No, I mean, just, yeah, I, I just would echo what, what you said about that. I mean, the Republicans are doing this posturing about blue-collar and working-class voters. And, of course, we could always add in parentheses white, right, mm, because right. obviously they're not too interested in appealing to non-white working-class voters. Uh and if you're not sure about that, just, I mean, pay attention to literally anything they say yeah. um, or the way they present themselves. But even beyond that, um, part of what's part of what's so, so insidious about it is, is is the entire premise is class as like a cultural affect and identity mm. and not actually a relationship to the economy and production. And that's where it gets very, very frustrating. And I think... Um, mystifying for people and you walk away from watching fox news and msnbc and and working class or blue collar it's almost like a, a cultural brand right. or you know it's like what kind of truck you drive and what do you wear flannel shirts and right. that kind of thing as opposed to okay do you work for somebody or does someone work for you yeah you know what's where do you sit in this economy are you a wage earner or do you live off profits and rents and dividends and interest? Yeah. Um, and so that's not the kind of that's not what they're discussing when they're talking about class. Um, they have tried to shoehorn working class into being a synonym for cultural conservatism. Mm -hmm. Right. Oh, yeah. We're real blue collar because, yeah, we also go to church and we also don't like those queers and weirdos coming out of the woodwork. Yep. Uh, never mind that I'm the boss and that I own this company, right. but I'm very blue collar because uh, I wear flannel and I drive a pickup truck. Yeah. Yeah. A $50,000 pickup truck. Yeah. Um, that that just has always irritated me. And I've always seen that a lot here in the South, like intersecting with the redneck identity, too. Mm -hmm. You know, you have those like fake rednecks <clears throat> who, yeah, they're, they're trying to portray themselves as these country redneck folks. Uh, in their $50,000 truck and, uh, you know, several hundred dollar outfit. Um, yeah, it's just, to me, it, that's what it reminds me of. Right. It reminds me of the rich suburban kids that were play acting as rednecks. Uh, and they're doing the same kind of stuff here. Yeah. Uh, so uh, getting back to the railroaders for a second, Sam Cedar on the Majority Report takes uh, messages to the show. And, um, and one listener asked, basically, why should Biden spend political capital on railroad workers when so many are conservative? So many are that, you know, conservative work. You know, there are like, you know, which is, we were just talking about um, Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley. They're pretending to be, you know, pro-working class and turning that working class identity into a cultural affectation. When we say that, we are not saying that there are not working class people who are culturally conservative. That is obviously the case. And there True. are, to this, to the, the clip that you're about to see, to this, uh, this IMers uh, point, some of them are conservative. 
Uh, I think uh, Sam answered well. Uh, I wanted to expand on it, though. So, Adam, let's play that clip, and then we'll respond. Hello, support the workers, but real talk. How many of those union guys actually vote for Democrats? 40 or 50%? Just a raw political calculus. Speaking specifically about the rail union, check the demographics. I, I get your point, but I think the symbolic part, and, and I happen to believe that they're, like, mainstream Democrats people in general don't care that much. They really don't. They would have cared much more about the, the strike happening and, and things. But I think for the base of the Democratic Party, a significant portion of the base of the Democratic Party, this is something that's going to sting for, uh, you know, into the next election. They got to do something about it. Uh, yeah, so there, you know, one of the things that, that I, I just want to expand on is that in my opinion, that there are a large contingent of union railroaders who vote Republican is a reason to support them. Right. It's evidence of your own <clears throat> failures thus far. Evidence of your own failures so far. And it is like they're there for the taking. I mean, you know, if you read, I, I just I just sent you last week, Adam, a, a page from a book that I'm reading about a paper strike in Jay, Maine, where Jesse Jackson came to speak to them. And he just came to speak to them. You know, imagine if he had the power to give them uh, seven more paid sick days and then he did it, right? Imagine, imagine how much that would do. But he just came to speak to them and show his support. And this one uh, white woman said, Yesterday, I could not have imagined voting for a black man for president. And today, this is quote is after the speech. Today, I'm writing him a check for his campaign. That's how mm -hmm. much power you have to influence the decision of people when you help them. When you reach out your hand to folks, people appreciate that. People appreciate that. And you illuminate whose side people are on. And so if Joe Biden came out there and went to support these some, I don't even, I don't, I'm confident that it's not a majority, but some of these union rail workers who do vote Republican, they're going to say, wow, that's funny. This Democrat got me seven paid sick days. Wow. And look at this. Dozens of Republicans voted against it. So if it was up to them, I wouldn't have it. That's interesting. Donald Trump hasn't said anything about this. Well, that's interesting. You know, so like the fact that they are, that it's a constituency that's ready for the taking is what I'm saying. Obviously, if, you, if he had done this, I'm not saying 100% of these people would have voted Democrat, but more of them would have. I can guarantee you that. I can guarantee you bet me any amount of money you want. I mean, it's it's not operable because this isn't happening, right? But if Joe Biden had gotten them seven paid sick days, I'd bet you any amount of money that you wanted, more union railroaders would have voted for him than will in 2024 now. And more union people. Because it's not just like Sam said, this is going to sting the base. 
the base of the Democratic Party, the people who are activated and routinely vote for Democrats, union members across the country, this stung for them. And it is going to be that much harder to pull the lever for the lesser evil for people in 2024. Yeah, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. I mean, and, and let's also just say this. It's the right thing to do. Right, right. Like, <laughs> Would be nice if demo we could... <laughs> demographics aside, polling aside, partisanship aside, it's the right thing to do to help workers, right? And you should have a politics that's based around how do we help working class people? How do we build the power of working class people? Um, and and I think if your politics is motivated by that, you're not even really going to have to ask this question. Right. Yeah, that would be nice if we could just have have you know politics and the questions are does this help working people? That would be nice to have a politics like that. But also on the flip side of that, like okay, it's the right thing to do. I contend, and I feel extremely confident about this. It would be uh, politically expedient. There would be a value mm -hmm. to it in terms of the people that will vote for you. That's what I contend. I also contend that it's zero cost. You know, like how, who is the constituency that is going to be going into the ballot box in 2024 saying, I would have voted for Joe Biden, but he gave rail workers seven paid sick days. I would have done that, but now I'm not. Who is that? Warren Buffett? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, mean I, I assume it's, it's you know, the handful of railroad barons. And, I mean, maybe there is legitimate fear there uh, of the railroad barons and what they would do to them. But uh, last I checked, they weren't, like, already there. It's not like they could count on them for support. Right. So I suppose you could you could inflame tensions there and that could come out hard and heavy for the Republicans and, and, and fight you hard in the future elections. But... <sighs> I, I don't know. I agree with you. I think there's just you have much more to gain yep. by doing the right thing yep. uh, than you do with what they've what they've done. Um, yeah. Standing on the side of capital. But, you know, again, that that presumes that they want to win. Right. And I don't make that presumption of, of all Democratic officials that they want to win. Not in the way that you and I define victory. Yeah. Not in the sense of winning elections and then passing legislation. That's not necessarily the goal for all those folks. Yeah. Or if it is, it's not necessarily the primary goal. Uh, and so that's that's something else. Adam, did you hear about... Um, actually, I asked you this before the show. You had not heard about the Olive Garden manager that was fired for sending an angry, angry email to employees. No, I, I have not heard about that. So let's uh, let's just let Mark Walsh, he's a Daily Wire fourth stringer, let's let him explain. A manager in Olive Garden in Kansas has been fired after sending an angry email to employees telling them that they may not call out of work for any reason. And if they claim that their dog died as an excuse for coming to work, they have to bring the dead dog in as proof. Now, the manager, whose name has not been published, thankfully, was fired. And, and most people have applauded the decision after the email went viral. But I'm on the manager side of this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you are. <laughs> yeah. 
Why am I not surprised? <laughs> I mean, could you imagine, like, seeing that email? And, uh, like, look, you know, okay. Managers at an Olive Garden are not, you know, society's elites, okay? They're not making significantly more than their servers are. And so they're, you know, just, to a certain extent, they're just regular people. And this was probably a low point for this person. They probably were really upset about something, you know, who knows. Adam and I have both worked in service industry and it can be very stressful. Um, I even served as a shift manager for yep. a while in a fast food industry. So, you know, I I yeah, got a little taste of it. Like I I am more pretty familiar with like what the general managers and those type go through and yeah, you're right. I mean, um, obviously, there's there's power dynamics at play there. They have more power than the the workers in the restaurants, but in the grand scheme of the economy, they're pretty low. Yeah, sure. And they have to. I mean, and in the in most cases, they have to work hard. Right. That, yeah. I, I, they legit, I, yeah. This yeah. is not a management type of position where they don't have to work. Right. Typically, when, they do, and well, it would not be until you get to higher like levels in the corporate chain or other. Right. Are like the owners, the yes. franchisees. Now, yes, in those cases, they're not having to work. But um, uh, yeah, the, your rank, your your regular general manager at a restaurant, they have to work, and they have to work hard, and they have to work more than most of their employees. And a lot of times, what it is is they take uh, employees who are servers and cooks and stuff like that. If they find one that has management potential, quote unquote, they try to talk them into going into management. Partially so they can work them more, but at a salary as opposed to an hourly rate, right? Yeah. And and so if you've got somebody who's working 50 hours a week, mm-hmm. put them on salary, call them a manager, and then you can right. uh, work them as much overtime as you want. And I see, yeah. I've seen that a lot in the service industry. Yeah. I've, I've had to put shifts together, and I have been like the lead person <clears throat> during multiple shifts. And so I have been... I, I have felt the frustration of somebody calling in for what I presume was probably a BS reason, right? Uh, but <laughs> there's it's also uh, Olive Garden. It's a minimum wage job. Those yeah, servers yeah. are making $2 an hour. Olive Garden gives them $2 an hour uh, for their time. And so, you know what? Like, as, a, as the person who has to do the shift when somebody calls out, like, that sucks. But, uh, you know, it... Olive Garden doesn't get, you know, uh, they can't expect to get more than a $2 an hour commitment. And yeah. I got to tell you, right now, my commitment that you would get from me for $2 an hour is pretty low. Well, Jacob, doesn't that impugn your work ethic, sir? <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, well, that aside, I mean, I, I was just reading over the the actual text of the email and this person is talking about how they got in a wreck on the way to work. Airbags went off and everything. The car was totaled. Mm-hmm. But they, you know what? They still showed up to work on time. Yeah. Well, now like, that, is that is brain worms. Right. Yeah. Like, okay, that's not you being a dedicated hard worker. That's I'm you. all about being a dedicated hard worker. Um, that's not even normal. That's not <laughs> right. Right. Um, right. That should be like a red flag. And I hope that like upon reflection, they reread that sentence and think, you know what? I have some weird priorities in my life. Yeah. I put Olive Garden above my own like personal well-being, personal safety. Right. Um, 
Yeah, it's uh, and think about weird. that. Like this, the, and, and this person, I don't know, if male or female. This person was let go after eleven and a half years of Darden because of this email. And I don't know how much you know, but like I don't know how how much other issues that they had with this person from this email. Probably, I, I would assume like uh, they were not an easy person to work for, right? But uh, but that is kind of like wow, one isn't email. Isn't that proof? Isn't that proof right. of like the the. Just the folly of, of having such loyalty to these companies that have yeah. no loyalty to you. Unless you have due process in law or union contract, you can be fired as an at-will employee and they do not give a shit about you. No matter how long you've worked there, no matter how dedicated you are, that's business. What was it uh, the UMWA uh, guy said earlier today? Something about the the bottom line is always going to be on, on top of people. Right. And that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, in the comments, we've got uh, uh, Charles says, it, it, you know, re, re, um, referring to these uh, to the managers, you do manual labor and manual labor and you manage. I was a manager at Papa John's and worked seven days a week, was averaging about seven bucks yeah. an hour. People used to regularly threaten to hurt us over messed up pizzas. People would scream at us. Workers called in every day. Very stressful. Obviously, yeah, very I, stressful. And so like I saw that a lot, too. Um, yeah. The email totally inappropriate. If this was it, do I think that this person deserves to be fired? I, you know, I don't know. That that's tough for me, especially if if this is true. Uh, Eleven and a half years, that's that's rough, right? That's rough, and no doubt, this person probably worked, Charles, like like you, like you know, not making a lot of money, working all the time, um, and so this is not to email totally inappropriate, and this person needs to get their priorities in order, but. Um, but none of this is to say that, that this person didn't work hard. But th let's actually Yeah, read. well, and in general, I, I usually am against firing someone, especially right. who has a length of service, over a mistake. Right. Uh, so let's, let's actually read the email, though. Our call-offs are occurring at a staggering rate. From now on, if you call off, you might as well go out and look for another job. We are no longer tolerating any excuse for calling off. If you're sick, you need to come prove it to us. <laughs> If you're, like, what, by sneezing on you? If your dog died, you need to bring him in and prove it to us. If it's a, quote, family emergency and you can't say, too bad, go work somewhere else. If you only want morning shifts, too bad, go work at a bank. If anyone from here on out calls out more than once in the next 30 days, you will not have a job. Do you know in my 11 and a half years at Darden how many days I called off? Zero. Psychotic. Insane. Looney Tunes. I came in sick. Gross. Not healthy. I do not want my server or my cook or anyone in the restaurant to be sick while I'm eating their food. Ew. Ew. Gross. What the hell? Why? Uh. I got in a wreck. Literally. I mean, that's like a health violation, right? Like you can't. I mean, that's you're not supposed to do that. Right. You're not supposed to do that. And maybe she should be wondering if uh, Darden is providing sufficient sick leave. Yeah. So she doesn't have to do such a thing. I got in a wreck literally on my uh, on my way to work one time. Airbag, airbags went off and my car was totaled. But you know what? I made it to work on time. Again, psycho uh, psychotic. There are no more excuses. Us collectively as a management team have had enough. If you don't want to work here, don't. It's as simple as that. If you're here and want to work, then work. No more complaining about not being cut or not being able to leave early. And this is a thing that I have a real issue with in the service industry because 
on nights where you should not be keeping the entire serving staff on through the whole shift. Because as the rush leaves, you should be letting servers go because servers only make $2 an hour. So if they're, they don't have tables or they don't have as many tables, they don't get paid, right? You should not be having a full right. serving staff all the way to close. You should be cutting people. And that was one of the punishments that we got when we, there were too many people calling out or, you know, whatever. Uh, that was one of the punishments. Was literally a, a, a pay cut for a matter of a few weeks by a pay cut by keeping more people on for longer. Uh, and that's inappropriate. If you're here and want to work, then work. No more complaining about not being cut or being able to leave early. You're in the restaurant business. Do you think I want to be here until midnight on Friday and Saturday? No. I'd much rather be at home with my husband and dog. Going to the movies or seeing family. But I don't. I'm dedicated to being here, as should you. No more excuses or complaints. I hope you choose to continue to work here, and I think we, management, make it as easy as we can on y'all. Doubt it. Thank you for your time. And to those who come in every day on time and work hard, I wish there were more like you. Psychotic email. I'm dedicated to being here, as should you. Right. I'm selling a fraction of my time and my labor power in exchange for a wage. A wage that's not very good. Yeah. Okay? There's not a lot of dedication that needs to go into that. Um, and I'm someone who's always tried to do a good job even when I worked at these crappy jobs in certain restaurants that were underpaying me and overworking me, you know what? I still tried to do the best I could because that's just how I am. My mama raised me, you know, always work hard, you know, no matter what. And so that's what I've always tried to do. But like, come on now. Right. Dedication. This. Right. It's just, it's, yeah, it's, it is bizarre. Um, and, um, and that's, you know, like, like like you said, that's fine enough, and I work hard. I try to work hard, and I think it's good to work hard, and I don't think it's good. Uh, you know, I, I, I if you're going to work, you should, you know, you should put in some amount of effort. Uh, but also, the companies should pay you for your effort, and, you know, if they don't want to do that, then they, then, you know, what do you expect? I'm not going to give you $30 of effort for $2. I'm just not. And similarly, they're not going to give you $30 an hour for $2 effort, right? Exactly. They're not going to give me as a customer $30 of food for $2 either. Right. So it never, ever, ever goes the other way. Workers are always implicitly or explicitly told to work above what they're being compensated for. Always work as hard as you can, work above and beyond, and blah, 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 blah. And yeah, always come in sick. Yeah, come in sick to even a if you are dealing with the public, even if you're handling food, you should come in sick. Yeah, come in sick to a restaurant, gross. Um, but you never—it's never expected for the company to pay you more than the value you create. It's never expected for a company to pay you or to give you more goods or services than you pay for. That's just never the case. It's always workers who have to give more than we're being compensated for. And that's just ridiculous. Uh, but let's, but, you know, Walsh, ex, uh, you know, Mark Walsh explains why he doesn't, you know, why he is on the, the side of, of the manager. So let's, you know, let's, let's hear him out maybe. You know, I don't know. Maybe there's something that we're not thinking of. Let's play right. this first clip. The point is that there, there, there is reason to object to this manager's message to employees. 
if you insist on taking it absolutely literally. But a more charitable interpretation is that this person is trying to run a restaurant and yet is sabotaged every step of the way by spoiled, entitled brats who want a paycheck but don't want to put the work in to earn it. And these are frustrations shared by a great many managers in the restaurant and retail space and other industries. Call-outs and no-shows are at an all-time high. And it's not because everyone's dogs are dying all of a sudden. It's not because there's a record number of family emergencies. Uh, if, it's a, if it's a medical emergency driving this problem, the, the medical emergency is a, is a severe allergy to hard work. I think is the, that's the real epidemic happening here. This is an affliction which has spread across an entire generation and beyond. And the people who are trying desperately to keep our economy afloat by keeping these businesses open, they're fed up and they're furious. And as I've often preached, you know, life requires work. Life is work. I wish it wasn't that way. But it is. The only question is whether you will do the work necessary to sustain your own existence or if you'll find a way to force someone else to do it for you. Hmm, that last part was interesting. I wanted to leave that in there because uh, that's like, uh, so are you going to do the work or are you going to be a boss, right? That's the thing. Right. That's the real thing. He's meaning it as, are you going to do the work or are you going to be some lousy welfare queen or blah, 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 blah. That's what he's meaning it as. But of course, working people actually know that the real thing is we do the work and the people at the top make the money. That's the thing. Rail workers are the ones pushing the trains across the country and Warren Buffett's making all the money, right? That's the actual dynamic. That is the real life dynamic every day across the country is that workers do the work and bosses make the money. Bosses make the money. Uh, but that's not what he means. He also mentioned in the, in the it, it, as the clip started that callouts are at an all-time high. How would one even assess such a thing? How does how, how does he know that? I, well, I'm sure he's very up on the latest <laughs> industry trends and data. Wouldn't you know? They take journalistic integrity very seriously over there at the Daily Wire. Yeah. Um, uh, thirty dollars super chat from. Bigalameo, thank you. Drop some love for the Valley Labor Report, fellow plebs. Uh, Sid, um, uh, uh, Sid says the point of these right-wing shows is to be for the bosses. Being transphobic is just the cherry on top, and that's what we want to point out for these people. Like, I, I want, you know, I hope that we get some people because usually when we, when we talk about these people. You know, sometimes we'll get in their algorithm and some of these folks will come in and they'll be like really angry, right? That, uh, you know, that I'm uh, uh, insulting their, you know, favorite personality, you know, whatever. But um, you've got a lot more in common with the person whose dog may or may not die and doesn't come in at Olive Garden than you do with people like Mark Walsh. And that's the thing. That is the thing that you uh, that you need to understand. And you know you've got a lot. You do have a lot in common with this manager, uh, but the manager is taking the side of corporate. They're not showing solidarity with people that work like her. They're taking solidarity with corporate, and that's the issue. Uh, and that's what people like like this Walsh person is. That's what they're doing. Uh, let's play the next clip. 
Door number two was never available to most humans who have lived on the planet. But it is available for us. Okay, because as it turns out, the system that really controls things, this is what they want. They want you to be a lazy good for nothing, just coasting through life with no ambition, no, no real desires, no plan, nothing. They want you to be satisfied with being merely uh, fed and distracted. That's what they want. So they've made this option available to us. And you think you could protest that system by doing exactly what they want, by becoming the sort of person they want you to be, which is like a non-person, a non-entity, just a big nothing? Who? What system is he talking about that wants people not to work? Like, how... You know, this is what not understanding, this is, this is what not understanding or pretending not to understand. I don't know which it is for this guy, right? I don't, I'm not sure if he le actually really believes that the system, whatever that may be, doesn't want us to work. I don't know if he actually believes that or if he just pretends to believe that. Because pretending to believe that plays into what you were talking about earlier in the show, Adam. The... Turning of working class into a cultural conservative work uh, uh, affect. Turning working class not into, uh, you know, analyzing society based on cultural affects. Not on people's relation to productivity. Not on people's relation to the economy or their work. Whether they work or somebody works for them. Not analyzing the economy or society based on that. But based on whether they hate trans people enough. So if you, like... Because this, this analysis is totally disconnected from reality. Well, the one thing I'll say that he mentioned that, that did sort of resonate is talking about, you know, the system more or less wants you to be content just being fed and distracted. Well, okay. There's some truth to that. I would, I would say that, yes, um, capital would prefer that we be content uh, with the bare minimum amount to, to be fed and, uh, you know, distractions. That's why over the last 50 years, we've seen wages stagnate or decline uh, and health care skyrocket, housing skyrocket. But mm -hmm. but you can have Netflix or Hulu. Right. You have endless, almost endless distractions that are uh, at our fingertips now. Uh, it's so much cheaper now to afford uh, a computer, a flat screen TV to get access to all the streaming. Um, that is where uh, we've seen prices go down and where technology has really uh, grown. And it is in the field of distraction. Yeah. So, you know, maybe he is onto something a little bit there, but he's talking about phenomena that is neoliberal capitalism. And neoliberal capitalism does not want... They want you to be content and not ask for more, but they do not want you to not work. Right. You uh, have to outside work. Outside of a reserve army of unemployed, and which, right. again, yeah, there is a segment of society that uh, will be unemployed, and that is on purpose, uh, because as long as there's unemployed folks, well, that's always leverage for the employer. Um, so, yeah, I, I think... Um, Oftentimes, these these far right cranks will touch on things that can resonate, uh, but from the wrong direction, or they're describing the consequences of their own ideologies. Right.
Charles says he's projecting a weird existential shadow of his ideology. Yeah, yeah, projection is, is a lot of, of what this is about. Um, yeah. Uh, so I've got one more one more topic that I wanted to touch on, um, and that's this hustle and grind stuff that's popping off. Uh, you know, a few weeks ago, we talked to some hustle and grind folks locally here um, on the show, and... Um, you know, one of those reasons is that, like I said earlier, I like to argue. Um, <laughs> I enjoy I enjoy talking to people that you know maybe that's a character flaw, but I enjoy I enjoy stuff like that. Um, but also, you know, these type of folks are really popping off in a lot of ways in the last year or so. Uh, you know, these red pill guys. Uh, Andrew Tate is one of them. He just got arrested in Romania for human trafficking charges, actually. Uh, but that's not what I wanted to talk about. I wanted to talk about a tweet that he sent on Christmas. What are you doing, you know, tweeting crazy things on Christmas? Go spend time with your family. Um, and a response that he got from a, a just really, really, really sad guy. A, like, I really feel sorry for this guy. So, Adam, listen to this. Here's Andrew Tate's tweet. Christmas message. Christmas message. You are poor. You are unimportant. Men do not fear you. Your woman disagrees with you. Your lives are shit. If I was forced to endure a year of your life, it would be the worst level of depression imaginable. This okay. is clearly an insult on normal working people. Just a normal working, like, you know, this is his Christmas message to you is that you're terrible, you're not as fancy as me, you don't have a Bugatti. Your woman disagree. Come on now. Yeah. It's just, it's bizarre, but and it's bizarre that people, because he's obviously, if you are not a millionaire or a billionaire, he's talking about you. Even if you listen to his, you know, this was on Twitter, so like this was for his followers, right? This is what he thinks about you, and he's saying it out loud, and people still like it. I don't understand. And particularly, like, the gro the groveling that people did in the comments of this. You know, a lot of it was people clowning on him, and, and you know, rightfully so. But this guy, I mean, just from a self-proclaimed business owner, quote, This is big inspiration. Doesn't matter how it is dressed up. Real talk or talk, you got to get yourself going. It's Christmas Day, and I'm still grinding. There's someone out there who will work even harder than me today. I need to be them and outwork them attitude what a sad life right i mean just how like how how does how do people look at that look at that kind of thing this is the kind of audience that this guy attracts how do people look at that and and be anything other than sorry for him hmm but, you know, I mean, this kind of stuff is, is really beneficial to capital. You get these freaks preaching to disaffected young folks that you got to grind on Christmas or else you're a terrible person. And it makes you a lot more malleable to the boss. It makes you a lot more malleable. If you, if your entire self-worth is a competition with some freak on Twitter about how hard you work, how many hours you worked in, in, in the week, or or how many, you know, NFTs you're selling, 
you know, that's helpful for the boss. That's helpful for capital. And it also individualizes your problem so that you're not looking outwards. I'm uh, a low-wage worker at Papa John's making $7 an hour. It's my fault. I just need to work harder. I need to give more to Papa John's. Yeah, I, that's a that's one of the things that that I notice a lot about a lot of this rhetoric is it's all about the individualism. Yes, and it's neglecting to recognize that we are members of a society, uh, and society affects us, and we affect society. But no, not to hear them talk. It's all just about about you individually. Yeah, if you're poor, it's because your own mistakes, your own flaws. And if you make it big and you are rich, well, then it's because you're just that much better than everybody else. Right. And so the hustle and grind folks are on their way to, to reaching yeah. the top where they can, you know, sit safely and on their perch and look down on all the rest of us that yeah. uh, aren't as good as them. I mean, it's, you listen to, you know, it's and a that's... very bizarre mm -hmm. kind of mentality and uh, frankly, one that is, I think, lends itself to pretty sociopathic uh, outcomes. Right. Yeah. Just what a sad life to tie your entire self-worth to the 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 to the time that you sell to a company or to to building up a company that you don't care about. You know, it's one thing like I put a lot of work into this. Um I don't, you know, I don't make any money from it. I don't take any money from it. Uh but I put a lot of work into it and I'm proud of it. Uh but it, you know, it's because I care about it. It's not because I'm not when I, you know, I don't know, maybe some people would say I hustle and grind about this, about this show or about the union or whatever, but I don't hustle and grind for the union or for my fellow workers because I want to make a bunch of money. Right. Or because I want people to, you know, like, because uh, I want to be like famous or some, you know, hustle and grind uh, idol. Yeah, the it, problem is not like having ambition or being right. a striver per se. It's like to what end? You right. know, to what to what end it, do you have this ambition or this drive or Yeah. Um I mean, you know, a lot of these people, you know, they're they're uh, you know, they're, they're doing all this stuff to try to make more money or to try to make themselves look like they have more money. Um and they're working all these hours. They say they work all these hours. And, you know, I don't know if you added up all of the time that I spend not leisure in not leisure time, you know, between my full time job, my work for my union, my work for the Labor Council, my work on the show. You know, you add all that up and probably I, I'm working as much as a lot of these weird hustle and grind people. But I, it's not for this weird material obsession. It's yeah. because I work at my job to make money to live. And that's it. That's it. I have a certain amount of, you know, affinity for the work that I do at work. I, you know, I, I feel like I'm, I'm doing a certain amount to help the environment and things like this f with my job. Um, but, uh, you know. At the end of the day, it's your means of survival. It's my means of survival. The other stuff that I hustle and grind for is because, like, I believe in it. I believe in it. I believe in working people. I believe that we deserve more. And I believe that, uh, you know. Uh, that I want to help folks understand why they deserve more, understand that they deserve more, understand how to make, how to get more. And it's not by, you know, sacrificing your life to a corporation. 
It's by coming together with your fellow workers and taking back the time that you have from that corporation and making them pay you equitably for it, making them pay you reasonably for it so that you can spend the rest of your time doing something that's actually meaningful. Doing right. something that's actually meaningful, like spending time with your family, like making friends, like going to the bar, going to the church. Doing something that's actually meaningful instead of sacrificing your life to capital. Just what a sad, what a sad way to live your life. What a sad way to live your life. On yeah. Christmas, no less. On Christmas. Yeah. Yeah. Talking about I'm I'm grinding on Christmas and I want to and I feel bad. This guy, you can tell he feels bad because he's not grinding even harder. How sad. Yeah. How sad. Well, and it's also sad when you see that you see folks that can't believe in anything bigger than themselves. Uh, and that's a big problem in this country is folks who cannot see or believe in something bigger and beyond their their own immediate life. Yeah. Um, that's the, so I think anyone who in any way does uh, act in some way or believe in some way that recognizes the connections that we have as fellow humans, you're, you're a ra you are a radical, mm -hmm. you, whether you realize it or not, because frankly, it cuts against the grain of, of what we're trained to think and, and believe in this country, because this hustle and grind stuff is not really all that new. It's just repackaged every few years. Yeah. It, it comes and goes, and it's, it's always going to be an undercurrent uh, in our culture. Yeah. All right, folks. That's going to wrap it up for us today. Yeah, I hope everyone had a great Christmas. Um, wanted to wear my Toy Makers Local 69 Elf and Reindeer Union sweatshirt today since this will be my last time for a year. Um, but yeah, I hope everyone did enjoy their Christmas and whatever other holidays they may be into over this time of year. Um, hope everyone has a safe New Year's Eve. Stay off the roads if you can help it. Just be responsible and... Um, Really looking forward to 2023 and, and the many good things we have coming uh, down the pike and looking forward to doing bigger, better things in the year ahead. Until then, send us money at tvlr.fm slash donate. Stay safe. All power to the working class. We'll see you next year. Bye.